Welcome to Doc's Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real live insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. Hey guys, this is Dr. Nee. Welcome back. What's good? Appreciate y'all tuning in. So first off, I just want to say thank you for listening to the last episode with Dr. Jason Campbell, also known as the TikTok Doc. Man, we got a ton of downloads there. We also picked up a lot of new listeners from that episode. So if you're new to the show, if this is the second episode that you ever heard of, thank you very much. Where y'all been? Y'all missing out? I want y'all to subscribe so that you don't miss any more episodes. But yeah, I just want to welcome you all. This has been something that we've been building over the past four years. Please make sure you go back and check out all the previous episodes. I think you would learn a lot. Also, we picked up some new listeners from Peter Kim's Growth and Leverage Summit that happened several weeks ago. So for everybody who's new to this show over the last several weeks, months, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you part of the family. So on this episode, we're going to have Dr. Quadro Chirimangtang. He joins us all the way from north of the border in Canada, and he has a podcast, a really dope podcast called Solving Healthcare. And his podcast is primarily working on fixing the healthcare problems that occur in Canada. But I really feel that if you are outside of Canada, wherever you are in the world, it really doesn't matter, particularly if you're in the United States, this stuff is still really relevant. Over the last several weeks, he's been churning out content, quality content, on COVID. And he's had expert after expert talking about everything and anything about how to provide the optimal care for patients who are suffering from COVID-19. And then he also talks about some of the ways that we can help patients' families deal with the grief, give them support in taking care of these patients. So it's really a show that I think that you all should be listening to. I think that you all should be subscribed to it also. But On this show, I brought him down here to talk on the hot seat about his podcast, why he started it, how he's been able to churn out so much great content. We're going to learn a little bit about Dr. Chirimantang, his upbringing, his background. And then also, we're going to talk a little bit about the differences in response to COVID-19 between obviously the United States and Canada. After listening to this episode, I'm telling you, you're going to definitely love this guy. I mean, he's got a very infectious personality. He is very dynamic and very genuine. So listen, I'm going to stop talking (laughs) and let's proceed with this interview. So without further ado, I present Dr. Quadro Chirimantang, host of Solving Healthcare Podcast. Let's get it. Dr. Quadro from the Solving Healthcare Podcast was good. Welcome to Doc's Outside the Box. Are you excited? That's how I want all my guests to be. I'm hype. I am hype. Can I just tell you why? Because you and I have had conversations before, and it was epic. You're going to be making an appearance on my show as well soon. We recorded that a few months ago. That's right. That's right. I like what you're throwing down. You just told me we're going to have a conversation on the real, okay? And we're going to act like we're at a pizza parlor, and you're having some grape soda, which I haven't had grape soda since You 19- haven't had grape soda? Since 1986 or some shit. You know what I mean? Give me a beer or some kind of, like, sophisticated drink, but I ain't drinking no grape soda. I'm a grown-ass man. No offense. I'm (laughs) (laughs) grown-ass. You know what I mean? (laughs) All right. All right. So you can have your beer, 
Okay, you can have your slices. They sell slices up in Canada, right? I'm assuming, right? Yeah, you get slices. Or you right, they don't get- do the whole pie thing, right? Like, you get a slice. Anything you want. You want the whole pie. You want the slice. You got options up in here. Okay, so today we are in a pizza store. We have a slice. You can have your beer with your 11% alcohol in it. <laughs> I know you look down on our pizza, our watered-down pizza, or our watered-down alcohol. Or your watered-down beer? Yeah, your beer. No offense. I'm going to have my grape soda. All right, I'm going to keep it real. Okay, keep it real. <laughs> the reason why we're saying this, guys, is because we want to have a real conversation. We're both doctors. You are a internal medicine, palliative care physician, right? And I see you. I see and you. I see you. And a lot of times when we have these conversations where even right now, when people have these conversations, you know, it's in an environment like you feel like you're in grand rounds, it's an environment which you feel like it's like an M&M morbidity or mortality conference. Either way, you feel like really constricted. You know, I really take pleasure in trying to get real conversations beyond that and talk to other doctors by taking the mask out and taking a white coat down and just chilling and having fun. So I say welcome to my office or welcome to the pizza store. Yeah, thank pizza you very talk much. In a way that we don't want to talk. So welcome, thank you, special guest, all the way from yeah. above the border. So I say A. Nobody <laughs> says that where you're from. <laughs> that didn't come easy to you, hey. Nah, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but Dr. Quadro, welcome, welcome to the show, man. You are the host of the Solving Healthcare Podcast, right? And this podcast you launched back in what September of 2019. Yeah, yeah. Ever since. Well, I have to say like late December or January, I mean, you've been hitting them in every week. You've been putting out episodes even more than that. You've been hitting it on social media. I've been really impressed with your grind. And for those who are not familiar with your podcast, your podcast focuses on the topic of improving healthcare delivery in Canada, which is something that I'm in the back of my mind. I'm like, I thought everything in Canada was all good. At least that's I mean, the perspective that we all have down here in the United States. You know, tell us about why you started this podcast. Tell us about your podcast in general, and then we'll kind of just take it from there, my man. One thing I also wanted to say before starting Neo is the topic of having a real conversation and being like authentic and putting the gloves off and the gowns and the, like, we don't do that enough in medicine. It's crazy because you lose yourself in medicine, always trying to impress. You're always trying to give off the impression like I'm ready to deal with anything in front of me. You don't get to show your true colors because you're always aiming to please. So one of the things, regardless I think it's to encourage our colleagues is just to be yourself. It's better for your soul. It's better for your mental health, everything. So I want to commend you, number one, for having that approach. And then regarding the show, we have this research group, Resource Optimization Network, and I've always been keen on how we can make healthcare more sustainable. How can we save money? How can we make it more efficient? How can we provide better care? And our group was pumping out papers. And honestly, nothing was changing. It was frustrating. It's three years of grinding these papers out. Nobody was reading them, relatively speaking. Hold on a second. Are you saying that, like, even from your perspective, you felt like things could be more efficient in the healthcare system? I'll give you a story. Give us an example today. This is a story that started everything. So I'm in fellowship. I'm finishing my ICU training. Got this trauma patient that's traked. We worked hard to get him off the ventilator with physiotherapy and all this stuff. He had a spinal cord injury. And he was really reliant on the chest physio that he was receiving to help him be able to bring up the secretions that are in his lungs. We were in an era of healthcare cuts. So going into a long weekend, he does not get his chest physio because our minimal physiotherapy on the weekend. His chest plugs, goes back to the ICU needing to be on a ventilator. And all that work we put into it, now we're two weeks behind at least. And to me, it's like you're going to have these short-term cuts when you know it's going to affect the long game, like this is not benefiting them. 
And so to me, it was just like this eye-opening thing. I'm like, this is wrong. We got to fix this problem. I'm looking at my patients from nursing homes that don't even want the care that they receive. Got brought into ICU, they put on ventilators, they get dialysis, and they have advanced directives that say they don't even want this. And yet somehow we failed them. What was big for me was how can we better address this? And this is a Canadian problem. This is a U.S. problem. This is global. So we did the research. We showed how we could save money. Nothing's changing. Our group said maybe we should start a podcast, really get that conversation going, maybe get the word out more in terms of ways we could make healthcare more sustainable. And let me tell you, Need, this completely changed the game. Having real conversations with people like you on lessons that we could learn to improve care. We got an awesome conversation about trauma and life in the U.S., gun violence and all these things. We went in there. We dove into it. (laughs) You took me places that I wasn't expecting to go, which was pretty cool. Yeah, you went deep. And I really appreciated it, actually, (laughs) being vulnerable and talking about, like, some of these experiences. But, you know, we covered a range of topics from inappropriate care, given the example from the grandma that doesn't want the care that she had advanced directive saying that she didn't want that level of care and she's still getting it. Talk about intermittent fasting. We talk about patient experience or had a cancer patient that was able to do a triathlon, Ironman triathlon, and that drive and the work ethic she's had to be able to achieve that. We've been doing a lot of COVID stuff lately to be able to empower clinicians and stuff. Been going really hard on the COVID stuff. I mean, you're in a different world, okay? What you're seeing is different from what's going on in Canada, but all you get was the negativity with COVID. All you get is a lot of fear that's being ensued with when we talk about COVID. And I wanted people to get reliable, accurate information and to realize that we could overcome this. This is a difficult situation. We need to be trusting our public health and our healthcare providers. But you know what? We will overcome. We are strong. We are learning from what others have gone through. I was just getting so sick of people just being like, we're all going to die. We'll never be able to manage this. And I'd be like, you know what? Let's take it a step at a time. But we can't get through. That's a long-winded answer. But that's really how all this developed. And the other thing that's been great about this journey with the podcast, this moment now, man, having a real conversation. People didn't get a chance to hear our preamble, but we even talked about what it was like going back to Ghana, that smell you get in the air, like connecting with people having authentic conversations. It's been such a gift, man. The whole podcasting thing has been such a gift. I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) I know you know. You know, because all you're relying on is your voice, right? So it's really your personality. The genuineness of your personality is going to come out and it's going to be shown and exposed on a podcast, right? So if you are corny, then (laughs) trying to be someone else is really going to show up. So if you're corny, just embrace it and be who you are. Yeah. You know, I coach doctors on starting their own podcasts and a lot of questions that they get is like, how do I connect with people? And I just say, just be yourself. Try not to be someone who you aren't. For me, the way how I am in a hospital, I try to keep it pretty close to who I am outside of the hospital. And I think that's been part of the reason why me and you, we connected, had a really good episode together. I can't wait for that to come out. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show because I wanted to expose you. And well, actually, I wanted to expose the audience what your show's about to you in general, what you've been doing with COVID, because I think you've been giving the audience some really great information, exposing them to some great experts, science-based experts on what to do in situations. But before we go into specifically the guests that you've had on the show, I want to ask you about COVID in Canada, right? So you guys are right above the border. We got imaginary borders and everything. 
but the amount of cases as of the 21st of April, let me just make sure I look at this the correct way. It looks like Canada has a total of, I want to say 38,000. 38,000 are positive. And I think there's been around 1,800 deaths, which, you know, every death is very important. But you compare and contrast that to what's going on below the border. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we were extremely lucky in so many ways. It hit us later, essentially, is why we were lucky. We got to see what happened in Italy. We got to see what happened in New York. We got to see what happened in Washington State. And we have excellent public health officials and prep. We had the SARS epidemic that prepared us. We had H1N1. We had Ebola training that really got us prepared. So we were lucky because we had to head start. So our social distancing, the prep we did for that was early. It was before there was a wave. And so that's why our numbers aren't out of control. That's why I'm fairly confident that we won't be overrun in terms of capacity because we had that lag time. We got that time to be prepared. You know me already. I like to ask questions. I don't act like I am the expert on all things. So explain to me how it works from a government standpoint in terms of how each province works. In terms of the COVID response, is this a national response or is each province doing something separately? And then how does that work also? Good question, actually. It is each province has its own chief medical officer that was guiding the approach to social distancing. So you would see different provinces. Ontario was fairly quick to close down schools, for example. And then a week or two later, you saw Alberta and British Columbia start to close down schools. It's still provincially run, but despite having different provinces, we're pretty unified. Yeah, thanks for that. And so what you saw in one province, you knew, you knew it was going to happen in other provinces, even despite it being more liberal or conservative. And of course, there's guidance from the federal government, but it is at a provincial level. It's been wild, man. Like, honestly, need like think about where we were two months ago, whatever. And like, look at life now. Would you ever guess this? Schools closed, borders closed. What's your drive like to work now? It is unbelievable to think how quickly your world could change like that. When you put it in perspective like that, it really is true because I live now in New Jersey, right outside of New York City. It is extremely busy in terms of traffic, business, where everybody's really in close proximity to each other. And like you said, as of two months ago, there's a really popular highway that's not too far from me. It's called the Garden State Parkway. And it connects from New York all the way down to you know the beaches of New Jersey and to like close to Delaware. Very busy highway. And you know, particularly the rush hour times, four o'clock, five o'clock in the evening. And in the morning times, six to eight, I mean, it's literally, they call it parkway. It really is a parkway. Like you are parking and you are waiting. I mean, literally driving on there at this time, four o'clock in the afternoon, it's like driving there at midnight. Like there's nobody on the roads or trying to get things, you know, food or what have you. You know, my son, who's just started daycare months ago, now the school is closed. It's almost like life imitating art, right? Because I watched The Walking Dead or I watched some of those other disaster shows. I love those shows. And you never think that's going to happen. You're just like, oh, wow, this is pretty interesting to find out how people would act in these situations, right? It's never the actual situation, the actual thing, like the zombies that scares me, right? I don't know if you remember, but in the late 80s, CBS or that's a channel here would have shows on disaster things. Like what if like a super hurricane came or what if there was a super drought? And it's never that actual thing that scares me or scared me at the time. It was actually how people would react. 
that's the thing about The Walking Dead that's really scary. Not the zombies, right? Because you don't pay attention to the zombie. It's how do we act when civilization breaks down, right? Are we going to maintain things of civilization or are we going to become savages, right? So, Man, aren't you nervous about that a little bit? I got to tell you, if you've been to the store lately or I've got three kids here, our grocery bill is always ridiculous. We go to Costco, whatever, and people are edgy and they're like a bit more attitude, like, hey, man, make sure that's two meters or sorry, six feet. <laughs> make sure that's six feet. I saw really, you so at- People calling you out, right? Yo, don't get oh, too people close, calling get you too out, close, like yeah. people just, yeah, exactly. Farm. Yeah, exactly. Stiff arm, yeah. Cool, but they won't even <laughs> stiff arm because it's like nuts. Yeah, you got to touch them on. You can't touch. But yeah, I'm just a little bit anxious about how we're going to treat each other afterwards. Am I going to give you a handshake after? Am right. I going to hug my friend? Let's talk about that. What do you think are going to be the long-term effects of this? Because you start to think oh. about things. The fact that society and civilization can continue along in this way, right? We're having a conversation in Zoom, but so many different things. Like literally, it has Saturday Night Live on Zoom. So many different aspects of business or aspects of our daily lives that have been changed, but haven't stopped. So the question is, is when it's time to go back to quote unquote normal, what's going to be the new normal? Or are we going to go back to giving handshakes and daps and getting my hair lined up? I don't need that, yeah, but I'm just saying, you know, getting your face lined up. I'm embarrassed about this, so it's like. <laughs> yeah, I got you on video too, so <laughs> it looks good. No, no, so from a man good. like me, where I'm at, I'm always jealous of you, so you good. <laughs> My time will come. Don't worry. This is what, honestly, I'm nervous to see how we look on the other side. I'll preface this by saying, I absolutely believe that we need to be doing our social isolation, listening to our healthcare officials on how we got to approach COVID. The thing that makes me nervous is, I don't know if we're having enough conversation about the negative aspects of all this social isolation. Like I'll give you an example. I have some friends that work in child protective services and they're telling me their calls have calmed down significantly. And that's because normally the teachers would be able to see what's going on at home, right? They'd be seeing that the kid's being abused and what have you. Now the kids are at home with their abusers, stuck at home, and we don't have this conversation. I don't know if people are bringing this up in the news or on social media, but what's the impact that we're having on these kids? And not only short-term, but long-term. What's the psychological effects of people that already are prone to mental illness or drug abuse? Now they're at home, they're isolated, they're making less money. The reason I think it's important to have these conversations is so that we could do something about it. You know what I mean? And I'm really nervous on how this is going to look when this is all said and done. Are we going to still have that level of humanity? Like you said, are we going to hug it out if I haven't seen you in a long time? Are we going to be able to still go to a conference and have that grape juice and a beer like afterwards? Well, you know Joe, you mean? need to try grape juice, man. A oh, grape soda, sorry. You got sugar-free? Dude, if you eat pizza, come on now. If no, you eat, sugar- wait, first of all, you hey, eat no, pizza no, 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 no. and you having a beer and you worried about if it's sugar free or not. Okay, come on, okay, but come I on. get the come added on, you're benefit. Talking now, you talking about the no, come no, on. no, no. But I get the added benefit of a little bit of my buzz on or some shit. <laughs> and the empty calories. <laughs> yeah, but like you're right, grape juice and a grape soda and beer will high level of calories. But yeah, I get my buzz on afterwards. Yeah, like are we gonna be sitting down having dinner together? Are we gonna go to a concert? I want to see Run the Jewel. Are we going to be able to go see them together? You know what I'm saying? Or is it going to be all virtual meetings and virtual concerts because fear of other illnesses? Because this is not going to be the only one that comes, right? You could argue there's going to be a second wave. There's going to be other viruses that are going to come down years from now. Are we going to be living in a fear-filled world? And I hope that's not the case. 
I think it's going to be based off of money. Like whatever it is, if the new normal costs less money than old normal, then we'll do that. You see what I'm saying? In a hospital setting, maybe we may have to wear PPEs all the time and so forth. If it comes to a point where it costs too much to do that consistently on a daily basis to get so many PPEs and run through that on a daily basis, I think we're going to realize that, okay, we can't do that. I think obviously in terms of meetings and people working, I think there's going to be a shift with a lot of offices switching at home, maybe having meetings that don't necessarily have to have everybody in-house, right? So from that perspective, I think that's where we're going to go. I want to take a step even further back because you started mentioning your upbringing and talking about being in Canada. So your family is from Ghana, but you grew up in Canada. Yeah, I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. You might know Edmonton because of Wayne Gretzky and the Oilers hockey team, maybe. That's a stretch, isn't it? Yeah, it's a stretch, bro. (laughs) I know the Edmonton Oilers, right? That's the team, right? By the time I was paying attention to hockey, Gretzky was already at the LA Kings. Yeah, okay. The next one they call is Connor McDavid. Yeah, yeah. You didn't think I knew that, bro. (laughs) I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Are you into hockey? Is hockey your sport? Big time. This is the other part of my life that I'm missing. Like, I play on two or three teams. This is part of the... You got all your teeth, though. Yeah, that's all your teeth. You ain't got no bridges or nothing like that? Nah, nah. I got two sisters that are dentists, so they help me keep it real. Real tight? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, they'd be mad if they saw this because of how stained my teeth are. Don't watch this, Abby and Emma. (laughs) But yeah, it's part of the crazy upbringing I had being in Edmonton. Like, I was the only brother doing everything. You know what I mean? And I wasn't shy from doing non-brother sports. Like I said, hockey was my huckleberry. That was my main sport that I played at a reasonable level. I played volleyball. And this is like in the 80s and 90s or something? Yeah, 80s and 90s. Played volleyball. Played basketball, obviously. Why did I say obviously? That's so bad of me. Why did I say that? You put yourself in that box. Yeah, I put myself (laughs) in the box. But it's funny. Whenever you meet somebody, especially back home, they'll be like, you talk about any athleticism, you play ball, don't you? You know, like it's always the assumption. And it's like my worst sport, honestly. Well, that's basketball. Yeah. Okay. When I was growing up, I loved baseball. I love baseball and football, mainly because I grew up in New York. Well, I grew up a portion of my life in New York and I wasn't too far from, are you familiar with the New York Mets and yeah. the Giants? The Yankees. Yeah. So I grew up in New York and I grew up in Queens, Queens, New York, which is a borough of New York City. And where I lived specifically, called Left Rack City, was literally across the highway from Shea Stadium. That's where the Mets played. And me and my sister, oftentimes, we would take our bikes. And we're like seven. I'm seven, eight. We would go across the highway. There was a little over thing you could go across. And we would go in front of Shea Stadium, hoping that Dow Strawberry would hit a home run over into the parking lot and so forth. Okay, Because we couldn't get into the games, obviously. Or that was also the same time where the Giants were really good. They won the Super Bowl. And then once it got into the 90s or the early 90s, I just switched to basketball. And then it was like basketball. And then funny, in the late 80s and 90s, early 90s, I was a big hockey fan. I used to follow the Devils. I used to follow the Rangers for a significant period of time. And then once I went off to college, things changed, mainly because of the lockout that occurred. Mm. And then when they came back, I don't know what happened. But like I kind of tuned away. And then when I turned back on to hockey, there was like all these crazy expansion teams, <laughs> right? Remember that? Yeah. There was all these crazy expansion teams. And I was like, wait, how many teams are there? I can't follow. And yeah. then that was it. And then basketball and now a little bit of baseball is my primary stuff. You were probably then when the Rangers won the cup, you still yeah, were probably, yeah, 94 was still into it. Big time. 
And then the Devils were winning during that time also. So, you know, Messier, Brodeur with the Devils and stuff. It was a really fun time to live in New York because, like, the Knicks were amazing. I think the Yankees were getting better at that time. The Rangers were really good. The Devils were really good. But, yeah, hockey used to be my sport. I never played it. But what are your thoughts now? It's violent. I assistant coach my kids' hockey teams. I'm a big, obviously, Oilers fan. Connor McDavid, best player in the NHLs with the Oilers. I love the game. It's just like you get everything. It's like strategic. It's fast. You have to have the so, lot so of Sidney athleticism. So Sidney Crosby is no longer the best. I'm just asking. Just So Sidney Crosby is no longer the best player? He's up there, but it's clearly there's McDavid is at another. Like he's a superhuman being. You will never see somebody in hockey ever move as fast as he does and do the stuff that he does. He is unbelievable. I don't want to get too technical in terms of hockey talk. But when you see defensemen just, when he's coming down the ice, just streamline it, skating forwards back to their goalie, just so they can catch up with Connor. It's another level. It's crazy. But yeah, today the boys will be out there. We have a couple nets out there to put on their goalie pads, shoot the ball on each other and play some hockey or some roller hockey. So it's just part of our life, man. How'd you get into medicine? Medicine? Oh, man. I have a very straight road. So my parents kind of convinced me to try and do dentistry. I had an older sister that got into dentistry. This would be the most boring profession. And if you know what I do now, you'll see why. But I always knew I wanted to do medicine. It took a little bit longer than some of my colleagues. I did my undergrad in biosciences and economics. And then... Wait, what? That's like biosciences and economics. That was a major or was that like you minored in economics? Minor in economics, yeah. I've always been a little bit entrepreneurial. I love the business side, economic side. I just find it fascinating. It's probably why I did my area of research on how to save money. Like if you ask yourself what a lot of decisions are based out of, especially like if we ask yourself what it really comes down to, it's like you said, when post-COVID, it comes down to dollars and cents. If you really want to be able to create change and speak the language of people that have the power to move the needle, you got to talk dollars and cents. So I've always had a big interest in that. It took me about two years to get into medicine after I finished my degree. I took one year was consciously off to just live life. So I was. So you did your gap year, okay? (laughs) Yeah, is that what you call it? Gap year. You did your two year gap year. I've never heard that term before, but yeah, gap. That's huge in the United States now. Yeah. Yeah, people are taking gap even between college and high school. High school and college, people are taking gap years, like the Obama's daughter. I think Malia. She took a gap year between high school and going to Harvard. Oh, man. Like, because let me tell you, now, man. let me tell you, it was the best time of my life. I got to travel. Like, I got to see all of Europe. I was a bartender in town, which was the shit. <laughs> what was the drink that, like, if you had to be known for one drink, what was your drink, man? Ugh. Maybe tequila sunrise. You get to shake it up a little bit. People that are looking for a different drink. You know, it's strong, but it also has a little bit of sweetness. You would like my sunrise. One of these days or one of these months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that. One of these months, I may have to come up there and yeah. see you hook me up. My thing is a great goose gimlet. That's my jam. That's a tight one, too. My go-to for myself is a vodka. Like, I like vodka. So you was a bartender doing your thing? Yeah, I was doing my thing. I even met my wife that way, which was really? crazy. Yeah. Met my wife that way. I mean, I could get her right now, but I'll tell you straight up. She That's picked me the- up. She picked me up. She was all awkward flirting at the bar. I was like, okay, I think it's on. That's probably the last place you expect to find your wife. Maybe yeah. a hookup. Maybe a hookup or a jump off, but not your wife. 
if you know our personalities, yeah, it's exactly as you said it. It wasn't the exact place you would picture meeting your wife, but it was a gem. And like, if you think about it back then, we all went to the bar. Everyone went to the bar to have a good time. But yeah, I just so happened to meet a great person during that time. Yeah, during the two-year gap years, finally got into medicine and so elated though. That much time between degrees, you don't know what's a possibility anymore. And just to clarify, so the way how you guys get educated in terms of medical school, is this similar to the United States or is it like other countries where you start in high school and then kind of keep going or finish high school and then you go straight into college and then you go into medical school? Explain to us how that works. There's one province that's an exception, but everywhere else is the exact same as the U.S. So ranging from two years to undergrad to four years of undergrad, you could get into medical school. And then there's one province, Quebec, where you can go, relatively speaking, right after high school. And it's like, I believe it's six years. Often the people from Quebec are much younger, but ironically, really well-trained, I find, actually. For the most part, it's exactly like the U.S., Okay. All right. So you go through medical school and then it's time to choose what you want to do. And you decide, it's same thing. You decide, is it internal medicine and then go and specialize in intensive care and palliative care? Yeah. So initially I wanted to be a pediatrician and... I can see you doing that though. You have the personality for a pediatrician. I love kids. I really do. But it's a tough world. People are pretty tense, high strung, I find, in in MPs because there's a lot at stake. And so it just didn't suit my personality. Yeah, everything in milligrams per kg. I'm not going to lie. I felt like the biggest anxiety doing peds. Right? And it's it's everywhere. It's the parents. It's the team. It's the nursing. Like, it's just everybody is tense. I mean, it's kids. Now that I have children, like, I understand it a lot more. Like I said, it just wasn't my personality at all. And so then I was thinking maybe emergency medicine. And then I did an elective in intensive care. Walked into Foothills Hospital in Calgary, and I knew immediately, this is it. This is my Huckleberry, man. When you got these teams, is that a Canadian thing? <laughs> it's it's from a movie. Jam. No, it's from the movie Tombstone. It's a western. Val Kilmer's line. Okay, okay, I got you. He's like, "Who's gonna fight me or whatever?" He's like, "I'm your Huckleberry." <laughs> I don't, I've been using it since. I got you. I got you. So yeah, man, you walk in there. Like acute trauma coming through the door. You're working as a team. You're putting your minds together as a team. Action that's coming through. It was just like, this is what I'm meant to do. It just felt right. I knew it right then and there. I did that at rotation for two or three weeks. I like to do internal medicine because I thought it was the quickest way, it was the quickest way to do ICU. I won't straight talk. I don't love internal medicine. Hey. This is real here, man. You can be yourself here because there are medical students who listen to this podcast, right? So it's really, or it's not even medical students, there's also pre-med students. It's very important that you let us know the real, real, because this is an opportunity for them to hear from so many different voices as to why they love something, why they don't. So keep it real for us, man. Oh, yeah. Well, the the internal medicine side, like I thought was a great training for ICU just because you have that wide breadth of medical knowledge, but... It wasn't your huckleberry. Yeah, it wasn't my huckleberry. Yeah. So I did that because that was the best way to do ICU. And then during that journey of deciding or getting ready for ICU, I discovered palliative care. One of my favorite human beings, rest in peace, Dr. John Seeley, seeing how he interacted with patients, how he could relieve suffering, not only for the patient, but for the family, for the teams involved. I'm like, I want to be able to do that. And so I thought it was a great combination because a large percentage of our patients pass away and 
honestly, I feel like the communication piece is one of the main ways you could really make a difference, not only in ICU, but for the med students and pre-meds that are out there. Like, it's a huge way you can make a difference. Knowing, communicating to a family, saying, that's going to pass, but we're going to make sure that they're not suffering in any way, being truthful with them and in terms of what to expect and setting expectations and making sure that family's connecting because we don't know how long dad might last. Like all these little things can have a lasting impact on patients and their families. And so I'm really proud of that piece about doing the palliative care. And it's something that even as I get to retirement age, it's something that I hope to do like as long as I can. That was essentially my medical journey and ended up doing also a master's in health admin along the way just to try and be able to make myself more attractive in terms of getting a job because in Canada, getting ICU jobs, even to this day, is hard to come by. When I look back, it was really a crazy journey. Like even getting the job I did now, my ICU jobs, I worked in small communities initially. It took a while to be able to get my quote-unquote dream job, but all the steps were worth it. Absolutely. Now, in your experience, you working, you know, here in the United States, it's a big issue with health disparities. And for those who don't know, that's basically not everybody gets treated the same way based off of certain implicit biases that we have. Based off of your experience, is that an issue in Canada at all? We really see it mostly in our indigenous native population. It's sad to see. We pride ourselves, like we see what happens in the States and say, you know, you'll hear Canadians saying, that's not us. We'll treat all, everybody equally. But when you look at some of the marginalized patient populations, like especially the indigenous population, it's not the same. It's clear, but based on the outcome of our patients, like indigenous health up north, they get 30% less funding for their schools. I talked to a guy that works up north and often they're running out of oxygen or medications and stuff. That's bad. And so we're not perfect for sure. And we don't necessarily see as much like black-white disparity, even though some might argue that that might be present as well. But certainly when it comes to Indigenous or Native patients, like that's definitely somewhere, something that needs a lot of work. You ever have, I'm not trying to make any offense, but you ever get like United States MV where you're like, I would love to practice in the United States or do you ever be like, uh-uh, I'm good where I'm at? You ever have those type of thoughts? Straight talk? I have zero desires to work down South. I'll tell you what. There's several reasons. One, the litigious nature, like worrying about being litigated. That's a big deal here, man. Yeah, we don't have that same level of, like docs will get sued for sure, but it's not out of left field. You know what I mean? It's not like some minor, minor issue that has gone too far where I just feel like get sued for sneezing. It might be media-based, but this is the impression of or I got from watching you guys. The other part is we literally get to Like, I don't have to worry about anybody's insurance. I don't have to worry about what kind of coverage they have. That's not a worry because of our, relatively speaking, universal health. Even if they, for some reason, don't have insurance, they're still getting care. There's no one not getting basic chemotherapy because of how much money they make or what's on their health card. That, to me, when you're a doc, especially in ICU, when you have so many decisions to make and just to try and make something better. To add a piece of, oh, is this going to be something they can afford or whatever? Like it's just something that, to me, will take away from my abilities to care for them optimally. And so like to have that as a piece, I just would not want that in my life. And so straight talk, you ask me, do I have envy? Honestly, it's virtually zero. I'm proud of our system in Canada. So what about like down here, down south? We mm-hmm. hear about 
the long wait times, having to wait a significant period of time for kind of semi-elective to elective type things. Obviously, acute things get taken care of. Oh, we don't hear those stories, but I'm sure acute things get taken care of immediately. But is it true, like it takes a long time for semi-elective things, maybe even a hip replacement to get done as compared to the United States? Yeah, I'd imagine all the wait times are longer for a lot of these things. And I think that's kind of the kicker. Depending on what province you're in, yeah, you could be waiting a while. But once again, when it comes to like the stuff that you need, chemo treatment, emergency surgeries, all that kind of things, we're there for you. And this is part of my mission on the show, like the Solving Healthcare, is how can we improve on a lot of these things? We can improve on wait times. We can improve on reducing the amount, like the ER waiting list. There's tools available and innovations that are happening, but we just got to think about this. We got to want to fix it and have those conversations. But certainly to answer your question directly, yeah, that's part of the kicker is some of our wait times are long, but it depends what you're talking about. Depends like if I needed a colonoscopy to rule out my cancer screening, that's not a long wait time, but your knees or hips. Yeah. Those could be. Wait a significant period of time for that. Yeah. Cause like what kind of wait times are you guys? If you needed your hip done, what are we talking about? The only wait time is literally to get pre-authorized, usually. What that means is the surgeon's office would call the patient's insurance, make sure that it fits all the guidelines, like the patient's insurance will take care of it, everything's fine. And usually, I have to say, I don't do orthopedic surgery, but I'd say at least maybe a week, two weeks, and then you're in. Maybe even longer. I mean, obviously, there's some other things, comorbidities make sure that they get medically cleared. Those things can delay things, but there's usually not that big of a wait to get certain things done. Something like that, ours would be longer. Yeah, for sure. I'm really fascinated on your podcast. I'm really interested through this whole journey. What have you learned about healthcare in general? Like, What have you learned about the ways in which Canada is giving healthcare compared to other countries? And I'd say the easiest comparison will be the United States. Yeah, what have I learned? Maybe I'll answer your question directly in a second. But one of the things that has really, really stuck with me is how much we can learn from the patient experience. When you sit down and you talk to somebody that has gone through chemotherapy, that's gone through an ICU admission, that has gone through spinal surgery, and hearing about what we can be doing to actually make a difference and to improve their experience, you don't forget these things. I'll give you an example. One of my good friends I had on the show, her son had a form of cancer diagnosed when he was only eight months old, and he's doing okay now. When things first happened, and she's a doctor too, the team would do their rounds, and she would make sure to be there at eight o'clock so that they wouldn't miss the doctors or whatever. And there was one day where the doctors didn't even pop their heads in because it was a weekend, it was busy, and there was nothing much changing in Henry, her son's care. But that feeling of not having that routine, not having that assurance really increased her anxiety and really made things difficult on her. And so when I hear that, I was like, yeah, I'll remember this. I'll remember that family that's waiting by the door to just me pop my head in and say, things are okay, guys. It's a busy day, but we'll sit down in the next 24 hours and go through things in more detail. Like even that little 15 second interaction could have such an important impact on them. The, the whole patient experience thing, which for me, I've always thought about, but never really dove into, has really left a big impression. The other thing I've learned too is in medicine, we should be embracing innovation a lot more than we are. Like we need to be thinking more outside the box. No pun intended. 
no pun intended. <laughs> that was like unintended, but it's so true. This is one thing that we must learn about post-COVID is we can move quick. There's a lot of innovative things that are happening. There's no reason that shouldn't be the norm. One of my first shows were on virtual clinics, on the way you could see your doctor via phone, via video chat. And why the hell not? Like, think about the process you got to do to go see your family doctor. You got a three o'clock appointment somewhere in New Jersey. Like, that's some bullshit. And you're waiting a long period of time. It's crazy. Think about how much wasted time that is. Embrace that shit. Let's be more efficient. Let's think about it. It's not hard. My mother recently had a stroke and oh, she was shit. seeing... I'm sorry, man. She okay? Yeah, she's good. But she's seeing her doctors. And up until a month ago, two months ago, we were driving, putting her in a car, driving to the clinics and, you know, she getting seen. But literally, now that we're doing telehealth, they look at her. We have a blood pressure cuff at home. We have a thermometer at home. Anything that's bothering her, we just move the camera so they can see it and so forth. Obviously, if she needs to come in, she needs to come in. But it likens it back to what you just said. Like, if we can just embrace technology and embrace innovation, maybe this is a way that we can improve wait times. Maybe this is a way we can exactly make things a little bit easier for doctors, particularly down south, where, you know, I don't know what the experience is up north, but at least with all these huge patient overload times and stuff where patients are double booked, triple booked, and so forth. So yes. I agree with you. Another one, too, in terms of innovation or thinking outside the box, like, I'm not an endocrinologist, so keep this in mind, but intermittent fasting, for example. So we did a show with Megan Ramos, and we're doing one with Jason Fung, like on intermittent fasting soon. A simple way that, and a sustainable way to get you healthy, lose weight, it's a way that people are coming off their diabetic meds, okay? And how many docs do you hear talking about it? How many primary care docs do you hear talking about it? Literally a way that is sustainable and fixes a lot of things that are common throughout. It goes back to our education. We don't really get taught how proper nutrition is. 100%. We get taught about nutrition, but we don't get taught proper nutrition. For example, with my mother, I'll give you an experience with my mother. Like She's getting taught how to eat correctly from a nutritionist, not by her doctor. Right. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong that I would be the same way because I don't know anything about how to do your proper portions and all those different things. Right. We don't know anything about that. It's really interesting when you brought up the whole notion of maybe on a weekend, less doctors being around. There's more of a weekend coverage. So you don't have as much time to do the things that you would normally do during the week. But for your one patient, at least the family, that interaction was really important. So you made sure that you spent at least 15 seconds, even longer than that, I'm sure just talking to the family and though everything is okay. You know, it's not until you're on the other side that you really experience that and you really appreciate that. So for me, we've been really lucky from a family standpoint of not having any major issues as we were growing up, so to speak, right? And this being the biggest thing, you know, with my mother having a stroke, just literally being able to talk to the doctor is a big deal. Finding out what they think, what's the plan, waiting hours upon hours for them, getting to an appointment on time and having to have these long wait times of like two hours. Like, man, this is crazy. But also understanding that it's not the doctor's fault. It just lets you look at healthcare from a different perspective. When you were mentioning that, it was real talk. Because when you're on the other side, well, unless you get on the other side, you don't really understand it unless you really take a moment to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You get a moment to empathize. We don't do that that much with healthcare, I think. And I think that's what you're starting to do with your podcast. You're starting to teach people the possibility or not possibility, but the importance of empathizing with others. And part of the thing to be able to create that is to be able to create more time. 
the reason why we're not doing that, we're not always connecting with our patients is because there's time constraints like crazy. Your experience, you know, you're with your mom two hours in the waiting room. You know what I mean? Like if you have time, you get more time to be able to connect, to be able to really listen and hear what our patients are going through. And so it all ties together. By being more efficient, we get to be more present. We get to see more patients. We get to have a better experience for our patients and do what we're meant to do. You know what I'm saying? And I hope mom's doing okay. You know, it's so true though. When you go on the other side, when you have those health scares or whatever, whether it's family or yourself or whomever, it's very eye-opening, man. Quick story. I was on call. I was in my second year, third year of residency. And I'm in a merge doing consults. It's three in the morning. And all of a sudden, food poisoning hits me. Whatever. This is about 10, 15 years ago, somewhere in there. And I start bringing up my food. I'm super sick or whatever. And the eMERGE staff took care of me, whatever. You realize how hard that bed is, how cold it is in eMERGE, how difficult it could be to get somebody's attention. All these little things that you don't think about when you're going in to do a consult or whatever. But man, it's good to have that lens that like, what are patients actually going through? Because it just really opens up your eyes. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. It's heavy, but I appreciate what you're doing. Right now, we're at the crust of the pizza right now. We've taken the majority of the pizza now. Now we're at the crust. I want to change directions and ask you some fun questions. So got really deep for a little bit. So now it's time to wrap things up a little bit and do some fast fire questions. You know what I'm saying? Some fast fire things. There's going to be a moment where I'm going to ask you to choose between one or the other. You're going to have to make a decision. You know, the whole fate of civilization relies on it. Don't be trying to make any new things. Just two questions, all right? Let me ask you a question because I know you've been at home a lot, or I don't know if you have been at home a lot, but I know that a lot of people are at home. I know you probably still have to go to work, but have you had to any time to binge watch anything, any of your favorite shows, or what have you been consuming while you're at home? Right now, I'm throwing down some Ozarks. What do you think about that show? First season was on point. Second season, not bad. I'm just into the third season a little bit. So far, so good. We have watched so much in the past. Like, I feel like that we almost ran out of shows. You know what I mean? But if you ask me, like, some of my favorite shows, that's a different story. But yeah, I got to say this because I got an audience. My favorite show of all time, The Wire. If you haven't oh, watched The Wire. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. I'm going to put something out there. Oh, that my God. I'm ashamed by my audience. Oh, my God. But literally... <laughs> I had never watched The Wire until this year. I've had so many people tell me the same shit. It's not striking anymore because it's actually hard to get into. Some people go watch the first three episodes and be like, what is this shit? It's long. It's long yeah. form. It takes a while. And when it came out, I was just transitioning into medical school. I didn't have HBO. And then the majority of it was when it was in its heyday was a combination of me being in med school as well as being as a resident. So I was like, mm, I'm not into it. But man. That show is legit. You are absolutely right. That show has got to be in like the top five of greatest TV shows ever. It is. I'm telling you, I've watched it twice back to back. It even gets better a second time around. So, oh, the detail, how smart it is. Like no music to it's raw. Oh, how about this? How about this? You know Snoop is real? You're talking about the woman. Yeah, Snoop is like a real gangster. She's a real, yeah. Like she's been in prison and stuff. They went authentic in that bad boy. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, like, that is true. I didn't know yeah. that about her, but I do know that a lot of the actors aren't really actors. They're just real people from Baltimore. Yeah. They kept the genuineness of the show and the realness of the show. And my wife, her favorite was Omar. And I'm oh, not going to ruin I'm not, Omar? I'm not going to ruin it for people, but it's just amazing how there's no sense of poetic justice. It's just 
the way how things happen in Baltimore, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Things just happen. Earmuffs for those that are going to watch it, yeah. Right, yeah. you know, there's no such thing as closure, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah. So if you had to choose between Avon Barksdale and Marlo, who would you go with? Ironically, my second born's named Marlo, so I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like, coming up with names and be like, we were like, how about Marlo? And I'm like, I don't know why I love that name. But it's so good. And then someone brought up the wire. No. One we're like, <laughs> one oh, of the major characters. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's probably who we were thinking of, even though that's a deadly gangster right there. But yeah, no, I go on Marlo for sure. What's your favorite movie of all time? Favorite movie? You might judge me for this, but I'm willing to put my neck out there. I really, really enjoyed Seven. Seven, really? Okay. Oh, man. With Brad Pitt. Once again, spoiler alert or whatever. You know, Quadro, listen, it is 2027 <laughs> came out like, I can't even say the same thing. If you haven't seen Wire yet or if you haven't seen Seven yet, then that's your bad. So please, spoiler alerts. We're doing spoilers. I don't spoilers. even know why I said that. But it's my favorite type of, like, I love the suspense movie. And where you have no idea what the ending is going to be like that, the building to it, it was so well written. The acting was okay, like it wasn't over the top or anything, but just how the mic dropped with that ending. It was... Two people for a loop. Oh, man. That was always my favorite genre. So Seven, Usual Suspects was in there. It's hard because when you have kids, I actually hardly see movies anymore. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? It's got to be like short shows and stuff because you got an hour post, kids going down before you got to go to bed, so... I'd have to say for me, definitely from 2013 onwards, since Netflix started with House of Cards and so forth, I've just seen a shift from at least my interest of, and, you know, we got married and busy working. So for the shift from going to movies to literally like TV shows are where it's at. And I find TV shows much more interesting now than movies. Me too. Can I say this too, just because you brought up your wife? I love those episodes, by the way. Why are you going to gas her head up, Dr. Quadro? Huh? Oh, no, just because it's like... Now I got to have her on more, man. It's true. <laughs> like that, it's the back and forth. It's just, it's adorable. That's how we really are, actually. You could tell, you know, and it's actually <laughs> kind of like, I've asked my wife, she's actually going to make an appearance. We're doing an interview on Friday with the psychologist. And so I was like, yeah, man, it's your time to shine, mommy. Let's go. <laughs> and it won't be as adorable as this. She's going to listen to the show, but now that you've done that, I've got to at least put her on for another Oh, yeah. Episodes. I love it when she's on. This is awesome, man. What about music? What's your favorite record of all time? Once again, my nickname was Coconut Back Home because I was like black on the outside, white okay. on the inside with all the, <laughs> <laughs> all the hockey playing. I'm going to go favorite album. I just go off the top of my head because there's a lot. Non-hip-hop, there's a group called Beach House, Teen Dreams, 2010 album. Beach House is unbelievable. The other one I would say is The National. They've got an album called The Boxer from 2007. Back to Front will slap you in your face. It's so elegant. It's amazing. And then hip-hop-wise, I've been so enjoying Run the Jewel. I like Run the Jewel 3. Actually, I'll do any Run the Jewel when it comes to the hip-hop. I love those cats, man. Killer Mike, so good. Well, how about this? I'll make it easy on you. This is going to be a good one. Okay. So if you had the opportunity, this is a real one. If you had an opportunity to watch LeBron James versus Michael Jordan, you had front court seat tickets versus watching, who's the best player right now in hockey? McDavid? McDavid, let's say, versus Gretzky. Because I've watched so much hockey in my whole life, I've actually never seen a ball game ever, despite Toronto being relatively close. 
I would have to see Jordan versus LeBron. That's what like, I was like. <laughs> no, tell me why. Tell me why. Well, just because like these are legends, man. These are freaky human beings, not just from athletic ability, but although just I've from heard, a specimen. Although I've heard going to a hockey game is no joke. Like it is so much fun. But keep going. Yeah, no, I mean, like I've experienced hockey. I know the game. I know the skill level involved. But like to see NBA basketball players at the finest, at their height, like to me, it's so crazy. Like once again, the athleticism is up there. But like LeBron as a physical specimen, when you're 6'8 and 200 and we'll say 60 pounds and you can move like that, oh, that is crazy. Now that you say it, like I should make sure to see LeBron before he retires. I saw him in Atlanta. It's literally like watching a cyborg play. I was watching him and they were egging him on. The Atlanta audience was egging him on and he just got upset and he was just like, I'm going to just show you my repertoire. I think people don't really understand the repertoire that he has because he's not the typical Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Durant. And I'm not saying that all those players are similar, but he's not the typical, I have a great jump shot. It looks pretty. I'm just going to just shoot the lights out. Like, the level of skill that he has is just really phenomenal. Similar to what you said about that great player, the best player, like he's just on a different level in hockey, right? Like he passes the eye test. The same thing with LeBron, like he passes the eye test. He's just better than everybody else. And you can't put your finger on it. Why? Because he doesn't have that pretty jump shot. He's not amazing at the free throw line, but you just see that he's just better. He's got the juice, man. He's got the juice. Got the juice. Let me ask you this, because you talk about innovation, you talk about technology. What are some life hacks or even just some piece of technology that you're using that just makes your life better or easier? Man, you want to talk life hacks too, man? This is like a huge area of interest for me, man. I don't even know where to start. I'll mention I do five-minute meditation I like doing just like, especially at the end of the night, just to kind of recharge, almost letting the day go because it's usually high stress, especially if it's work and then helping manage three kids. Have you ever seen the Wim Hof technique? No, talk to us about that. Wim Hof, it's a breathing exercise you could do. Essentially, really create a sensation of relaxation. There's nothing like it. Make sure to Google it. It's not real difficult. It's mostly breathing, hyperventilating, and then taking some breath holds. You'll find afterwards you feel refreshed. You feel like it replaces a caffeine jolt or a coffee just because you're more adrenalized. It's like a way of rejuvenating yourself. When you look up Wim Hof, it's a breathing technique he does before cold therapy. He'll go and swim in Arctic waters and stuff. I heard about this technique, right? Yeah. So what's the whole point of this cold thing where you jump into these icy waters? There's a few things. One, they say it's good for your immune system. It also is really anti-inflammatory. So We had like 45 minutes in there or something? No, no. Like a lot of guys will just do three minutes (laughs) and ice baths. (laughs) I'm giving much frostbite, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a real good energy booster. I don't do any of the cold stuff, obviously, being from Ghana. I'm from Edmonton. But that's some of the theory behind the cold therapy. But yeah, you do that technique. It helps you withstand the cold. So like you'll do the breathing techniques and you'll see the videos where he's going in ice baths or walking in sub 32 degree weather. That's Fahrenheit. But yeah, that's the one I like. Cold as F, man. Damn. Oh, man. Other life hacks, just so many. I don't even know where to start. I'm big on like athletic performance too. There's one called the oxygen advantage that I am a big believer in and so. Once again, a breathing exercises or like breath holding to really improve your cardiovascular status. So when I'm working in the gym, I use some of these techniques to try and just improve my cardio and translate to better performance when I'm playing hockey or football or volleyball or whatever sport that I'm playing. 
Man, I wish I would have put more thought into this because I love this topic. That's why. And then there's all the productivity stuff too. Like I'm a big believer of 80-20 or always looking at how I could get optimize my time and be more efficient with time. But I'm cognizant of how long we've been on the show. But like, honestly, ever want to dive deep in that stuff? I can talk all day about optimize your health. Like there's so much stuff. Oh, like my intermittent fasting. I've been doing that for two and a half years. Absolute game changer in my life. I haven't eaten yet. It's 1230. I've just had coffee all day so far. I put in two cups of coffee in here. I work out fasted. I've already had a workout this morning. My percent body fat has gone down. My muscle mass has gone up. Like the meal I'm having at one o'clock, it will be massive. My two meals today, massive. And I love it. I love the fact that I don't have to worry about how much I'm eating. That freedom is liberating. So you've been doing it for two years? Since January 2018. It's one of the best things that's a little change in life that I've made. You don't have to think about what you're eating. I'm not eating pizza all day, right? But I'm not thinking about how (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) At the crust, I'm literally going to eat as much food until I'm content, as long as it's like real food. And like my body, like I said, body composition-wise is improved. I feel better. I have more energy. I keep preaching it because I've lived it and I've seen the results from colleagues and stuff. It's a no-brainer for me. How about this? I'm going to have to have you come back on and talk about this because we hear about it from athletic trainers to, you know, just people in various sports, but you don't really necessarily hear it from a physician. Um, So it'd be good to get your standpoint on this, the science behind it. And maybe this is something that we all can incorporate as advice to our patients or even just for ourselves. 100%. One of the last questions I want to ask you is, if you had an opportunity to do this, is there anyone that you admire that you wouldn't mind trading places with for just 24 hours? Huh. Put you on a spot on that. Yeah, one. it's funny because like you think it's such a common question that you'd I'd have like a go-to answer. I like asking this question because it gives people like there's so many things that you gotta think about, right? Like you gotta think about so many different things, like the politics of my answer, or who do I really admire? Is their life really that great? Or is my life that good? You know, there's just so many different things that you gotta think about. So I love asking people their answer on this. Take this with a great assault. Like I wouldn't ever trade places with anybody permanently. I love my life. I love- I said 24 hours, man. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's why I'm just prefacing this. And this is a cheesy answer, but I would love to be Obama's brain for 24 hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) the way he carries himself, well-spoken, seems like fearless at times. Like what a leader to be able to bring a nation together the way he did. And just like to have that intellectual capacity, that EQ, like all the pieces to be able to do what he's done. Delegate, like, you ever hear one of his speeches on pandemic preparation? Oh, yeah, yeah. This motherfucker, like, he was on this shit. He was like, yo, we got to get ready. And then they transitioned to Trump and say, like, whatever Trump says. But this guy, he got it. I'm just using the pandemic as an example, but, like, he just got it. That would be a person that I would love to be in his mind. There's another person, too, I won't necessarily dive into, but Malcolm X saw the documentary series on Netflix, watched the first episode. I would love to be in his brain for a day, just having that level of fear, knowing that your life's always in jeopardy. You got to be that brave, going on a stage, knowing that you're probably going to not get through this. And yet still preaching the message of trying to be aware of the injustices and inequalities amongst Black people. That was another one that I've always been curious about. You know, what I've gained from that story, at least from that Netflix story, And just in different examples of people 
from various backgrounds, ethnicities, who did things that at the time were very unpopular, but years later, decades later, turn out to be you know, either profits, profits too long, big of a term, but maybe just obviously just turn out to be vindicated. There's an admiration that I have for people like that, mainly because we all look at people or we all look at these situations 10, 20 years away from the actual event as it was occurring. Right. So we say, oh, yeah, of course, like Muhammad Ali. How can you not be behind Muhammad Ali or how can you not be behind Malcolm X or how can you not be behind certain other figures, Chavez and so forth? And it's just like the thing that I admire about these folks is that the prevailing opinion at that time was completely 180 to that. Yet they still put their life on the line. They still sacrificed a huge amount and they really believed in what they actually believed in. So I really admire that. So it's really interesting that you bring that up because it's so difficult. Right? Like, be able to know that all this opposition is against you and your life's out on the line and you're going to step up. Like, that's, I don't know. It's just, I don't think a lot of us, and when I say a lot, I mean, like, I think there's an extremely small percentage of Americans and people in the world who could do something like that. It takes a lot of gumption to do that, you know? So, but listen, I'm going to transition to our last question. Dr. Quadro, I asked this to all my guests. Dr. Quadro, Chairman Tang. And I am not just a doc, I'm a... Oh, snap. I am... <laughs> I am... As we can hear in the background, you are a father. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there's so many during... Yeah. You know, this is how it is, but we are real, man. <laughs> yeah, it's real. I'm a human being. At times, I'm courageous. I'm at times a leader. At times, I'm scared. At times, I'm vulnerable. We often try to give labels to ourselves and... One thing that I've been trying more as I'm getting older is not to be attached to these labels. But, you know, like there's a lot of anxiety and depression. It's like trying to live up to something that uses self-defined, whereas I'm just here. I'm here. I'm trying to do my best as are you to make, whether it's healthcare, society, whatever, make it a better place. And it's all about being here, being present, connecting, being a human being, a good human being. I love that answer, man. I hope that's... <laughs> I knew that was a question now that I thought about it, but I was like, oh man, I didn't think about it. No, Dr. Quadro, real talk. I think that that's the whole concept of this conversation. That's the whole concept of this show is for it to be not scripted, right? Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what you really think when, you know, nobody's really looking. And that answer oftentimes isn't pretty, but it's genuine, right? So you just gave us a very genuine answer about just being in a moment and being the best person that you can be. Not being the best Dr. Quadro, but being the best quadro that you can be, I love it. Please don't apologize for that. And that's what I want the audience to get from this is that we don't play here. Like we are asking <laughs> questions that you normally wouldn't ask on any other podcast. We're going to continue to push the limits. So with that being said, man, Dr. Quadro, thank you for coming on the show. We definitely have to have you come back again and talk about intermittent fasting. Yeah. But the shop is closing up. It's time for us to be out, man. So I appreciate you coming on the show. man. Give you a little bit of love. I mean, you inspired me to do what I'm doing, man. You're one of the first podcasts I discovered with somebody that's in a similar spot where young healthcare professional just trying to find our place. And this whole doctor outside the box mentality is what we need to embrace without a doubt in my mind. You want us to see us innovate. You want to see things progress. It starts with conversations like this. It starts with what you're doing, son. And so like, I want to commend you. My listeners are going to know about this. Canada, U.S., Puerto Rico, wherever it might be, there's a better people squeezing in 
the time to listen to this. And they don't have to be medical either, man. These are like proper lessons as human beings. So keep doing what you're doing. Don't shy away from getting mommy on the show too. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I have a choice, brother. So, (laughs) My man, thank you for coming on the show, man. Let's do this again sometime soon, man. 100%. Thank you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow your roll. Pump those brakes. Before you jump onto that next podcast, I need you to help me out. So if you enjoyed this episode, or if you enjoy this podcast in general, I want you to take one of two options. One, subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find it that much easier to discover this show. Or two, go to the homepage, that's drneedarko.com, spelled D-R-N-I-I-D-A-R-K-O.com, and click on the right blue icon that says ask me a question and leave me your feedback leave me your concerns leave me your questions leave me whatever pisses you to f off and i'll be sure to feature it on an upcoming ask dr knee segment listen this show is nothing without you all i appreciate y'all thank you so much peace